been singing this morning about how great our God is. And normally when we think of greatness in that sense, you, we might think of awesomeness. We might think of theological terms like transcendence, you know, meaning God is above everything and he's out there somewhere in this sort of big, amazing God, wherever big, amazing gods hang out, right? Wherever that might be, we kind of think of, of God in that way. But fundamental to discipleship, fundamental to any kind of followership, fundamental to anything like apprenticeship, is direct personal knowledge. Now, I'm going to unpack those words in a minute, but just hang with me for a second. Fundamental to any kind of apprenticeship. If, if we were with an iron worker and he was trying to show us how you heat a bowl and you make it into a plate like this, you would need proximity, right? And it would be a direct kind of personal knowledge where you'd be handling the plate and stoking the fire and being shown the tools. And it would, in that sense, be a very direct, personal kind of knowledge. So this is a kind of tension that Christians have had to live with from whatever tradition. You may come from a very maybe high Catholic tradition. And when you were young, this was all sort of mysterious to you in a negative way. Like, what does all this mean? Maybe you even grew up hearing the Mass in Latin. And it just was, yeah, it was sort of beautiful and transcendent. But in any way, was it direct personal knowledge? Now, I'm not picking on Catholics. I'm just saying some of you might have experienced life that way. I come out of a tradition. You might say that something like on the complete other end of the spectrum. I come out of a tradition where almost all of us said, I invited Jesus into my heart. And we thought that, you know, that meant we have this personal relationship with Jesus. But I'm just telling you, from the Catholic side of the church, sort of Latin mass, I didn't get it as a teenager, all the way across to the other side of the church, what did we mean? Did we mean that, like a pig valve, we have a little plastic Jesus in this thing that pumps blood in our chest? Think about it. What does it mean that I invited Jesus into my heart? Or for lots of people, it didn't mean anything. It was sort of an attempt to something that was more personal, more internal. But actually, that saying can be as sort of spooky or weird as hearing Latin Mass. I invited Jesus into my heart. Now, what our readings do this morning is they alert us to the fact that, yes, there is this amazing, transcendent, holy, and awesome God. But he deals with people through direct personal knowledge. And knowledge of this kind is not in particularly high esteem these days. Uh, knowledge is one of the very, you know, favorite things around bar stools or coffee shops or whatever to question. And our culture right now, for good or bad, is just rampant with cynicism and rampant with suspicion about all kinds of things, but especially any attempt to speak about religious knowledge. But it's been this way for quite a time. You know, Billy Graham started as a very young man after World War II. And he was a, uh, no one, very few people know this, but you know that Billy Graham actually went to Bob Jones University down in Florida, uh, left because he, he couldn't hack it. But when Billy was a very young man, I mean, he's probably in his very early 20s, 21, 22, just beginning to preach down in Florida, still a Baptist, he um, uh, was in some small town about to do a little crusade and was looking for the post office. So he asked this young boy, can you tell me where the post office is? And the young boy tells him, and Billy says, hey, I'm going to be preaching tonight down at the Baptist church. If you want to come on, come on over, I'll show you how to get to heaven. And the little boy says, no, I don't think I'll be there. Billy goes, why? 
Little boy says, you don't even know how to get to the post office. Uh, so there's just not a lot of confidence, you know, sort of easy, intuitive confidence in our culture today that direct personal knowledge of God is available. But what I want to say to you is there is no followership of, of Jesus apart from direct personal knowledge. Now, when I use those terms, I don't mean to in any way criticize that religious things are mediated to us by others. I don't mean to say that if a parent influenced you towards faith that somehow that's not personal because now it's been influenced by your family or community or maybe you're in a Christian club in college or something, so now you can't count that because this is, this is knowledge that was mediated to you in some other way. I don't mean to say that. When I talk about direct knowledge, what I mean is something that in the end gets worked out in you that's not convoluted or vague, meaning it's not owned by some institution, a church or your family or a Bible club at college or whatever, but as it gets into you, you experience it in a direct way. By personal, I mean, of course, that it's this kind of knowledge of God that leads to actual fellowship of Jesus is not impersonal. Like, have you ever been to a bad doctor or had a bad professor? You kind of knew they knew what they were talking about, but they were completely impersonal, meaning it never found its way to touching you, to affecting you, or somehow relating to you. So when we use a term like personal in this setting this morning, we mean something like something that intimately or closely actually relates to me. So if I use the term personal ambition, you know what I mean by that immediately, don't you? This person has ambition that's very personal to him. So it doesn't mean when we say personal, something that's completely unaffected by community or culture or family, because that's ridiculous. Every human being is situated in a family. Every human being is situated in a culture. Every human being is situated in some little tribe or another. And so we're not talking about somehow coming completely out of context. We're just simply saying that it's personal. Now, I know, you know, there's a lot of news all the time, but can some of you remember back to the little uh, late-night TV talk show wars in the, uh, uh, the um, like, in January? Remember Leno and Letterman and Conan and all that? Remember when all that was happening? And so it sort of revived this old tension between Letterman and Leno. And so you remember Letterman started teeing off on Jay about stealing Conan's show. Do you remember that? Well, at some point, there was a big headline, I remember, that said, now it's personal. Now, why? Here's what happened. Letterman was teeing off on Leno in sort of showbiz ways. I mean, you almost had to be sort of a showbiz insider to get some of Letterman's jokes. But one night when Jay came back on the air, he'd sort of had enough. And he looks over at Kev, you know, Kevin Eubanks and the Tonight Show band. He looks over at Kev and goes, hey, Kev, you want to know the best way to never get Letterman's attention? Marry him. See, now it's personal. See that? Now it's personal. And that's what the headline said. You know, Leno took it deep. You know, just that was sort of unfair, you know, below the belt, blah, blah, blah. Well, we all know what personal means. And apprenticeship to Jesus, actually being a follower of Jesus, requires that kind of thing to where now we know it's personal. So this great God he somehow allows himself to be known by us in these direct, personal ways that lead to a kind of knowledge. And by knowledge, all I mean to say is something very practical, that there is a way of living with Jesus 
that matches or aligns with reality. In the same way, it's very possible to be with an, a silver worker and to have him teach you how to make a, a plate of silver. You would all grant that that kind of knowledge is available, right? That we could all go to the Toyota brake fixing training, right? And somebody would take off a set of brakes and show us how to fix power brakes. Now, I have no idea what I'm talking about, so I'll stop. But I know that kind of thing is possible, that somebody could actually show you how to do this. And you would end up with a sort of tactile kind of knowledge. It's something that you would have handled, and in that sense, had a direct kind of personal knowledge about it. Well, what our readings teach us this morning is that, that not only is that kind of direct personal knowledge available, but it comes to us and is made personal by this thing that Paul calls reconciliation. So let's think about this for a minute. If you want to get your bulletins out and follow along here, Genesis 18, we see that these, this kind of Christian knowledge that leads to apprenticeship or followership of Jesus is personal in that the Lord appeared to Abraham. Now, folks, I don't mean to sound all fundamentalist on you. I don't mean to go all fundamentalist, but the truth of it is you either believe that or you don't. And uh, in, on one sense, um, uh, out of love and respect, I, I don't mind what you think about it. But in, a, in another sense, I mean, what you think about that will completely determine how you visualize your relationship to God. I mean, either he makes himself known in these direct personal ways or he doesn't. And the Bible's just telling us stories that are sort of vague moralisms or give us some little, you know, inkling about God or something. Or God really is personal. And he really does make himself known in personal ways to people. And of course, in this case, he does. But one of the things that this story in Genesis is telling us, it's, it is, of course, about God continuing to work out his purposes from Abraham to Isaac. It is about that. But one of the things that you may not see immediately reading this story that, in my judgment, is very important is that this God is making things personal to an ever-widening circle of people. So now not just Noah, and now not just Abraham... But the story says, where's your wife? Well, Sarah was doing what Sarah should be doing. Out of the company of the men, not allowing herself to be seen, and being in the tent, sort of like Martha, doing what women should be doing. But when God says, where's your wife? and then says redemptive history is going to unfold through her, we get the message that everyone counts. As Paul says, male or female, slave or free, Jew or Greek, everybody who wants it gets in on the personal knowledge of God. And this is why, of course, evangelists forever have said, Jesus stands at the door of your heart and knocks. Revelation 3.20. And if you'll open the door, he'll come in and dine with you. He'll sup with you. He'll make things personal. That's why every evangelist has said that. Now, of course, we got all mixed up about it in sort of post-World War II Christianity in the same way that people got mixed up about the beautiful Latin mass. But this doesn't mean what was being said in Latin is untrue. It just means we had a hard time making direct personal knowledge out of it. But evangelicals don't get off the hook, as I've said either. We've had the same problem. See, what has happened is, is that women had been hidden from men outside of the conversation, 
But God's about to make her, actually in the Old Testament, Mary-like. I mean, Sarah is very much a sort of forerunner or, you know, kind of beginning clue about somebody like Mary for whom, you know, God's most sort of pointed and fantastic act of redemption happens through her. But of course, like lots of us, Sarah doesn't get it. Now, she happens to be a woman, but lots of us don't get it. She, she hears it and she laughs. I don't think this was a mocking, derisive laugh. I think it was more like a, for me? Like, really? I get to come out of the tent and play? I actually get to go down in history as somebody whom God, in a very direct, personal way, through my womb, makes redemptive history unfold? I get to play on that kind of direct, personal knowledge kind of level? It was unthinkable. Uh, when I was being consecrated a, a bishop, I, I didn't have a cross to wear. A pe- bishops wear these big pectoral crosses, and nobody had given me one. And uh, so when we're, um, we're standing in the back room waiting for the service to begin, and Rick Warren had come in, and so all the bishops were saying hi to Rick, and, you know, sort of getting ready, and Rick was getting his microphone on, and, and uh, suddenly Archbishop Kalini looks at me and goes, where's your cross? I said, I don't have one. And in his very lovely, I I adore him, African way says, you should have one. (laughs) It was like, you know, it's like Star Wars or something, you know, this (laughs) voice that says, you should have one. Well, one of my really lovely brother bishops, uh, a man called um, (laughs) Sandy Green, uh, overhears it and takes his off. This really beautiful silver cross with 11 amazing purple stones in it. He takes it off and goes, here, and he gives it to me. And I go, for me? He said, yeah, for you. I said, to keep? He said, yeah, to keep. I got another one. And then afterwards, he told me the story about how it had been given to him and stuff. But that's how Sarah's reacting. Like, come on, this is too good to be true. For me, I get to come out of the tent and play. I'm a woman. Yes, black, red, yellow, white, male, female, slave, free, whatever. The message of Genesis is direct, personal knowledge is available to you. That God wants everyone to come play. Well, Paul just teaches us that that doesn't happen you know, kind of by accident, it doesn't happen outside of a wider story, that that kind of personal knowledge, getting in what God's doing, getting to play a part of, you know, your role in God's big transcendent cosmic story, how that happens, Paul says, is through this thing called reconciliation. Well, what is reconciliation? Of course, you know, the Bible teaches us what? That your sins have separated you from God. Now, you can all go home and check me on this week, or if you've got your handheld devices, you can Google it right now and see if what I'm telling you is true. But I, standing here right this moment, cannot think of a time where the Bible says you are separated from God by your beliefs. You don't have an adequate theory of the Trinity. Your your theory of the atonement's a little shaky here. I just don't know of anything like that. But consistently, the prophets, the patriarchs, the writers of the New Testament tell us you're separated by God because of your sin. 
Now, of course, sins can be mental. I don't mean to say that beliefs are unimportant. I just simply say that what's in mind here in this separation from God is a kind of lack of direct personal knowledge that's shaping your life. And so other forces start shaping your life. My sense of who I am sexually begins to shape your life. My sense of who I am economically begins to shape your life. My sense of who I am educationally begins to shape your life. And all of those things, human sexuality, education, politics, they all have value systems associated with them. And people start embodying those value systems. And those value systems start separating you from God based on your behavior. And so Paul says that Jesus fixes all that. That all of us who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all of us who have embodied the value systems of other aspects of humanity, we're now separated from God, not experiencing that direct personal knowledge. And so Paul says, just of course repeating the stories of the gospel, that, that Jesus makes this personal through his physical body. Now this is very important and we don't have time to get into a big uh, talk about all the ways that Christian theology has gone off about Christ. But this is a really odd construction in the Greek New Testament. It's, you just don't see this anywhere. You don't see it in classical Greek. You don't see it in the Greek New Testament. You don't see it anywhere where somebody says that, that you're reconciled through a physical body. Why would a writer do that? I mean, what is a body if not physical? Like, I don't need to say to you my physical body. Of course my body's physical. Why, why modify body with this adjective that says his physical body? Because that's what mediates the goodness of God. Christ's physical body, personhood, is the personhood that God is inviting you to relate with. The reason this is so important, it's not just, we're, we're not just, it's not that Paul is not here, uh, you know, like writing something that he's thinking is going to someday end up in a, somebody's systematic theology. Like, he's not thinking here of Burkhoff. Are you with me here? Or he's not thinking here of the Westminster Confession, thinking, well, how can I influence the Westminster Confession? I mean, can you see that's just nutty? What Paul's trying to say is, Christ is not merely this spiritual thing that you can relegate to something that's transcendent or out there or not attainable to women and slaves and blah, 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 but it's personal and it's concrete. And here's why this is important. Your sins are personal. The pattern of contempt that exists in our lives that so easily boils out from under us when somebody cuts us off on the freeway, that, that deep content, contempt for other human beings is personal. It's deeply and concretely personal. Therefore, it requires a personal reaction from God, a concrete action, Christ's physical body. Experience a, a, a brutal, unfair death, a burial, and a resurrection and a physical body ascending into heaven is the concrete, personal, direct action of God for concrete, personal sinners whose behaviors and actions and worldviews have separated them from God. Well, of course, the gospel reading just shows us that this kind of personal, direct knowledge has things in life that makes it hard. The first thing to say here is Martha's not bad. Martha's not unspiritual. Martha's not stupid. Martha's not somehow uh, some kind of a lesser Jew. 
At least twice in the Gospels, we read where Jesus says, I'm going into a city, go there and make what? Preparations. So Jesus has actually commanded his followers on at least two occasions that I can think of to go into town and make preparations. So how is Martha in any way a bad person for making preparations to host this person? And in fact, we know, especially from John's gospel, that Jesus apparently is especially close to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, that they are kind of his friends, that that's where he hangs out when he's on his way to Jerusalem. And so for her to be in the kitchen making preparations is a completely normal thing to do. There's nothing wrong with it. The moral of this story is not just about, you know, busyness as we've normally heard about it. The real moral of this story is that, especially for us living today, our schedules are jam-packed with good activity, with labor that has merit. I mean, I can't be the only one in this room that I don't do anything that's not good. Do you know what I mean? If I got out my calendar and showed you what I was doing, you would not see anything on there that goes, oh, that's lame, oh, that's superfluous, oh, you should get that out of your life. I don't have anything like that. Anything that you would see on my calendar is good. You can just look at it and go, yeah, yeah, you're right, it's good. But what this story tells us is that sometimes even the good can lead us from direct, personal, ongoing knowledge of God. And that even when one is leading a good life, in fact, I've said to a couple of friends this last week or so, I've said, you know, I think I'm probably living the worst kind of good life a person could live. Meaning, I'm not out there sinning. But I can just feel when your life gets too chocked full with good things, you start losing that sense of direct, personal knowledge of God. In which, like an apprentice learning to make silver, you find yourself actually being able to embody what's being taught. When you can no longer embody something, when something becomes merely abstract or conceptual, and you're no longer concretely feeling it in a direct, personal way, then you just need to stop. And this is why for thousands of years, the basic Christian disciplines have been silence and solitude. Because in silence, you're going to hear one of two things and one of two things only. The rattle and hum of your own life and the voice of God, because that's all there is. And that's why forever Christians have practiced times of silence. It was a time to say, hey, my life's full of good, but I've got to sit at Jesus' feet for a moment. And so when Jesus says Mary has chosen that which is better, all he means to say was not that Martha's preparations were bad, it's not that it's bad to be a good host. It's not that it's bad to be generous. It's not that it's bad to take care of guests and, and you know, be generous and all that. It's, none of that's bad. It, uh, the point here is simply God is trying to make himself directly and personably knowable. And sometimes we can get into life that even in its goodness separates us from that personal knowledge of God. Now, here's what's interesting. I've, I've said a couple times now this morning that everybody gets in, everybody gets to play. You've heard me say that. Interestingly enough, in my view, our culture is letting us down here badly. 
in that they take that, they, they take essentialness like male, female, Jew, Greek, slave, free, and they take the openness that's in that and are now saying like anybody gets to be in with God no matter how you live. But that's not what the Bible says, not even close. In fact, the psalmist tells us, who gets in on this? Who gets to come to God's dinner party? I mean, I can almost guarantee you that's the way Peterson gets this in the message, just knowing him. Who gets to come to God's dinner party? The psalmist asked this morning, do you remember? Look at your psalm. Who gets to come? Who gets to be a part of this thing? Who gets to be in on this direct personal knowledge of God? And the psalmist says, and this is the sort of general idea, is that he who is actually apprenticing their life to the rhythms of God. So the person who really gets in on this is the person who speaks truth from the heart, who does his neighbor no wrong, who knows right from wrong. They're able to despise, quote, a vile man and honor those who fear the Lord. The kind of people who get in on this and stay in on it are those who keep their oath even when it hurts. The kind of people who sort of get in on this and stay in on it are people who lend their money without usury and they don't accept bribes against the innocent. Jesus put it this way. Anyone who does not lay down their life, take up their cross, crucify themselves, lay down their life and come follow me, cannot follow me. So women, you're in on this. Here's the deal. Unless you crucify yourself, deny yourself, lay down your life, you can't come follow him. Guys, you're in on it. Slaves, you're in on it. Jews, you're in on it. Gentiles, you're in on it. But it's really important that when you hear that, you don't hear that as a moralism. It's not an abstract moralism, and it's not Jesus really ticked off. Like, I could always tell when my mom was ticked off. She didn't have to say a word. There was a pose, you know. Well, something like this. Hands on the hips, left leg sticking out, head bobbing. And if I saw that down the hallway, I knew something was wrong, you know. I'd turned up the Beatles, Revolution, too loud or something. Are you with me here? I just knew something was wrong. Well, you can't picture Jesus that way. This isn't a moralism. Unless you're really good, you can't be with me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, unless you lay down your life, you cannot come follow me. He's not saying, I won't let you because you're bad. He's not saying, I won't let you because you're still occasionally smoking a cigarette or your sexuality's off or you're drinking or you're stealing. He's not saying, I won't let you. He's saying, you can't. You can't actually come follow me and be trying to live your life. You need to let this become direct personal knowledge to you that begins to shape and apprentice your life, which means day by day, we have to make decisions to actually follow him. And moment by moment, we make decisions to actually follow him. This is what Jesus is saying. This is all the psalmist is saying. The psalmist isn't saying you have, to be, you have to be perfect to play, like you can't come to God's dinner party unless you're perfect. He's saying you can't play unless you have this kind of alignment where you're laying down your life. And just trust me, we'll say more about this another time. But um, when Jesus asks us to lay down our lives, to take up our cross, to crucify ourselves, he's not asking us to become a nothing, a nobody, a doormat. It's the greatest invitation any human being could ever receive. It's an invitation to followership of Jesus rooted in the direct personal knowledge of God. And so when John in Revelation has Jesus saying, Behold, 
I stand at the door of your heart and knock. And if anybody will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and dine with you. That is the essential cosmic message. Sarah, you're in on it. And if you'll open the door, if you'll, to switch metaphors, if you'll lay down your life, we can have direct personal knowledge of each other. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. I want to have a personal relationship with you that leads you to lay down life as you've known it and to pick up life in the kingdom of God, life in the way of Jesus, life, humanity, as God intended it. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www dot myholytrinitychurch dot com.